This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com. Each episode, Dr. Cachet and I talk about a peer-reviewed study published in a science journal. This week, we talk about patterns and reasons for Kratom use among current and former opioid polydrug users, published in the March 2020 edition of Journal of Ethnopharmacology. Lead author and Kratom Science podcast guest, Darshan Singh. So I didn't I didn't realize at first he was a researcher that's in uh, Malaysia, right? Yeah. And he's working with it seems to be some University of Florida uh, medicinal chemistry and and pharmaceutics. So people out of the College of Pharmacy. So it was nice to see that there there's overlap there. You know, I'd be curious. I didn't see anywhere really in the paper, but like a funding disclosure. But if I had to guess, because of the association with, oh here we go. Uh, no conflicts of interest because of the the association with University of Florida. It's likely that this these studies are um, funded by the NIH to to some extent, National Institutes of Health. Yeah, and I know I know um, I mean since this is a recent one, they might be getting some uh, NIDA because they got a couple of grants at uh, University of Florida, and uh, uh-huh. yeah, Christopher McCurdy was on that. He's he's one of the. Uh, bigger uh kratom ones here in the united states i think university of florida and that university of science in malaysia the two that i see the most come up with uh the kratom studies yeah but you know and i think i think that he offered uh dr singh in this paper and in the episode offered a um an alternative look and it's you know this is more more or less uh um sociology study you know it's a, mm-hmm. it's a survey that they collected and the data self-reported and where you get into sort of the pros and cons of that but I, I i like to be able to see this type of research in another country where there's a history there and there's also social dynamics at play but it's different than the u.s and it's different than you know it's different than any other sort of country or state right mm-hmm. um it if you get more results from multiple locations where the cultural economic language factors are different um it's a good way to sort of um get through the noise of what could be um a, you know a self-reported survey type study where you know yeah. people it's a joke in like psych 101 where um you know we know a lot about college age white people because those are the people who are on college campuses and can um uh, volunteer themselves for all these studies that, you know, pe- beginning psychiatrists or so, uh, psychologists are, are able to do. Um, but we don't acknowledge, you know, don't, don't acknowledge that uh, very much that we need a, a real bigger representative of the sample population. So I thought it was cool to, to see it and to hear him talk about it from perspective, that perspective. And from that angle, I thought the episode last week was great. And he mentioned, I mean, that might have been one of the drawbacks of the study because there's there's some pretty stiff penalties in in Malaysia for dr- like drug trafficking to an extent is sometimes punishable by um, capital punishment there. Right. And so right. even yeah. some of the so the two sample groups in this one was current poly opioid users and former. Well, some of the former ones 
might have been lying because I think they even mentioned it in the study because of you know le- they're afraid of legal ramifications, and he even addressed that right. in the podcast as well. Yeah, yeah, no, that was a real good, yeah, good part in that they why should we let this guy who's ostensibly a foreigner or a stranger, right? But they don't know him. Why should they let him into their social circle when, you know, they're getting relief and they don't want to lose their supply and they don't want to go to jail. It's, uh, you know, certainly an issue with misguided and sort of like, or racist or socially based drug policy rather than, rather than scientifically based drug policy where, you know, it, it, I appreciate, too, that he brought up the alcohol withdrawal is far worse. Heroin withdrawal is far worse. Like benzodiazepine withdrawal is far worse. And he, and he made an adequate comparison that I, that I make sometimes people when I'm talking to him about coffee. Um, you know, it's more or less on the, uh, you know, scale of, of, a, of a good caffeine, you know, dependence um, where people are functional, but they're not, if they go without it for a day, they're not going to, you know, freak out and need medical attention, both physically and psychologically, but, um, you know, that they'll make it and it's, it, it can be used properly in that way. The uh, population he studied, so it was 204 opioid poly drug users and uh, 142 current and 62 former and it said that they were from the northern peninsula, peninsula so they were from, like, the rural areas. And uh, mm-hmm. one of the things he mentioned was they do have methadone programs there in, in Malaysia, but he said, you know, it's a travel expense. They have to come into the city to do it. Pe- people are getting arrested outside of methadone clinics because, you right. know, just the, the, the policing there. And uh, so, so Kratom is kind of a... It's kind of like uh, they have no other choice type of thing, and it, and it and they can get it there. It, I think especially because like northern Malaysia would be close to southern Thailand, so it's all right. grown there. And um, you know, it's it's like one of those things. I mean, a lot of people use kratom in the United States because they have no other choice, or they can't afford the medical care for other treatments, or they don't want. They just don't want to get addicted to. Uh, you know, whatever buprenorphine or suboxone or whatever is offered. So there was, that's exactly there was yeah, that too. what I was thinking. I mean, it's not all that different from the United States, like the hurdles one must go through to get quote unquote, the like proper treatment. Right. And then, uh, on top of that, you know, aside from the travel logistics, aside from just finding a doctor, cause I mean, it's, it's, they keep clamps on it as tight as they're keeping clamps on abortion. Right. So finding a doctor that's allowed to, then getting there regularly, then you get drug tested. If you were going to use medical cannabis, even in a state that's legal, they'll say, this is probably drug use. You're off the program. Goodbye. Like as in right now, not we're going to give you three more days or something or, you know, not, there's no, there's no compassion there. And, and the, from a harm reduction perspective, it just, you know, it can be infuriating. Patterns and reasons for kratom use among current and former opioid poly drug users and the reasons are pretty much right in line with the stuff we've heard which is mostly to mitigate uh, opioid use 
uh, in withdrawal, and that's mostly the comments we got. Um, some sometimes it's for uh, it says euphoric, but I think that's mostly mood boosting. It's not like uh, mm-hmm. euphoric, like getting high type thing. It's 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 like a mood booster, and so that that was one of the reasons. And it said psychological problems, which a lot of people here would say anxiety and depression. Uh, that was one of the, but but mainly it's for uh, to stay off drugs or to uh, help with withdrawals. And and he even mentioned yeah. methamphetamine; it, it helps. Yeah, that was interesting. I mean, um, it's it, there are there are points in which we start talking about creative, and you know, if we continue this journal club, and, and so this is a you know a survey based uh, use study. Uh, but if we get into like any pharmacology or psychopharmacology, like uh, kinetics, um, you know, the real answer is there's a hundred plus compounds unique to this tree, this kratom tree, mm-hmm. and we don't know what all of them do. We they haven't been characterized, um, and there's certainly, you know, I think the idea of an entourage effect in cannabis has, you know, generally understood that you know consuming the cannabinoids together with the terpenes produces effects that it wouldn't if you were just to consume one in isolation. I would assume that the same thing's going on with kratom, but we have a lot of analytical chemistry, you know, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamic studies that still need to be done um, that may that may reveal, um, you know, to a certain extent that there is something with amphetamine-like stimulants that it's, you know, and, you know, really just calming yourself down, um, getting the the anxiety um, sort of out of the forefront of your brain would be a good way, you know, would be a good way to to deal with that psychologically. But there might be something physiologically going on that we just don't know yet. Well, it talked about, like, my tragedy's the main one. And all we in most in most of the studies, the other thing we hear about is seven hydroxymetragenine, which is uh, the more opiate-like effect. But the interesting thing I saw it said uh, the mitragenine content differs with different types of leaves and how they are ingested. It has been reported that while mitragenine content is roughly twelve percent in leaves commonly found in Malaysia, it could go up to sixty-six percent in leaves found in Thailand, which is quite a difference. <laughs> Huge difference. Yeah. I mean, I thought about like really frosty cannabis plants, ones that are just like super, super sticky. Christmas just because it's, 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 you know, it's so much, but I don't think Kratom doesn't have, you know, trichromes or sticky resinous glands like the cannabis plant does. So it's interesting to sort of think what is that, what does a leaf with 60%, 66% content look like? And, you know, was it an analytical chemistry error? But yeah, that that caught my caught my eye as well. Like, holy moly, that's that's pretty high. This other study, it just came out last year. It showed that actually metragenine is actually metabolized into seven hydroxymetragenine. It was just one mm-hmm. study, so but which is interesting, and that seems to be where because seven hydroxo is kind of a minor alkaloid. They they never come up like the other alkaloids ne- never come up in right. studies. He was also saying in the, in the podcast, uh, Doctor Singh was. I was like, well, have you ever heard of hair loss or liver problems? He's like, he's like all this stuff I hear from the United States, but not here right. in Malaysia right. where we're getting it naturally off the trees. And he he mentioned that the Kratom's Consumer Protection Act would take care of that because you yeah. would at least have to list the alkaloid content and what you're selling. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that was sort of, 
um, that sort of is at the crutch of what I was mentioning, how it's good to see this type of survey-based research. And plus, you know, with 300, close to 300 people, it's pretty statistically valid. And there's pros and cons to every type of study, right? So it's yeah. just good to, to know those. But um, he, yeah, he basically said, look, I, I'm seeing these headlines come out of the U.S. where an ER doctor group, you know, is, is writing about um, uh, cytosis or mania and liver damage and all this stuff being related to Kratom. And they're not seeing that there. And, you know, without a study like this, without someone like Dr. Singh, who's doing an empirical, you know, survey, doing the statistics, getting the numbers up there, we wouldn't be able to make that, um, you know, uh, claim to essentially say this is, this is, we're probably looking at blaming the wrong thing, causation, you know, or correlation doesn't equal causation. But there are these, these symptoms are not seen in other populations around the world using similar amounts of kratom for the same reasons. And then, you know, then therefore we can engage in a productive conversation with, with some of the, you know, the, the anti-kratom um, sort of pseudoscience that's using, being used and shuffled around different health departments to, um, to try to get it into schedule one, which would just be, a, you know, a tragedy. I, I noticed in Mississippi, because I was following Mississippi for a while, I had a, a lady who I was cor- corresponding with who's really active in Mississippi, and they were going, you know, the guy, the people who want to prohibit it in Mississippi are all law enforcement, which is problematic, mm-hmm. for one thing, but they were going around saying, right. oh, it's 13 times more powerful than morphine, but they were talking about 7-hydroxomitragenine, and and powerful doesn't mean you're going to owe. Yeah. Well, and, and so, yeah, I highlighted this section. It's, it's, it's an interesting to chat about. So when they say higher potency than morphine, so, you know, this is the 2004 study that is cited in the introduction of uh, the SING paper that were, was published in 2020 that we're going through. Yeah, um, looking at it. Binding affinity doesn't necessarily correlate to strength of effects and there's also potency behaviorally at a behavioral level, right? So you can say this binds to this molecule stronger. It's like a stronger magnet, but that doesn't always necessarily mean that psychologically or behaviorally, physically, um, you're actually feeling, you know, like it, it, it corresponds to a true stronger feeling of the drug having activity. It, it, it's different levels of analysis and, you know, when you look at binding affinity from an analytical chemistry perspective or pharmacokinetic perspective, um, you're typically looking at like a mu opiate receptor that's been isolated and put into um, some tissue, usually pig ilium or a piece of small pig intestine, and you're measuring the electrical current on the neuron with a patch clamp. So you're measuring the difference across the, the bilipid membrane, and then and you're washing the ileum in that compound, and you're watching how much it decreases, the electrical current decreases or increases, it doesn't speak to um, the resultant behavioral or psychological effects by any means. Um, One of the things that I didn't realize, though, just on this section again real quick, um, Traginine does not recruit beta-arrestin-2 mediated pathways upon receptor activation, and is considered a safer analgesic to classic opioids. So there was a lot of hullabaloo about the FDA or the DEA putting out a study that said, well, this binds to the opiate receptor 
the mu opiate receptor, which is one of three opiate receptors. And there's others, of course, that are just called opiate-like receptors that haven't been characterized. But they said, well, binds there. This is what it is. We're done here. You know, let's make it schedule one. That was reckless because something like, okay, so uh, they're saying metragenine, when it binds to the mu opiate receptors or it, it blocks out um, molecules on the kappa or delta opiate receptors, it doesn't recruit beta-2 arrest-mediated pathways. So when the compounds bind to the receptor on the neural membrane, it can recruit other uh, proteins to that receptor and initiate signaling pathways all the way down to DNA expression or just, you know, have them start building compounds or stuff. The beta-2 arrestant pathway is a G-coupled protein receptor pathway that leads to changes in the amount of receptors on this, in the synaptic cleft. So the way tolerance develops in opioids, and by the way, tolerance is not the same across the board in a molecular perspective or a behavioral psychological perspective, um, Typically, you activate a receptor and you're continually activating this receptor and the neurons are essentially like this receptor is too activated. We're being exposed to a consistently higher quality or quantity of these compounds. I need to pull some of the receptor pathways out of the synapse. So it's reducing the density of opiate receptors at the synaptic cleft where communication between neurons uh, occurs. So without beta-2 arrestin-mediated pathways being activated, it's not initiating the intake of receptors out of the synapse back into the neuron, which would then lead to a tolerance or having to take more of the compound to get the same pathway. So metragenine does not do that. They said 7-hydroxymetragenine does have reported to exert actions on the beta-2 arrestin-mediated pathways. Um, to produce undesired effects such as tolerance and cross-tolerance to morphine. That cross-tolerance to morphine is another um, important indicator of, you know, potential abuse potential or potential addiction potential. Um, so the 7-hydroxymetragenine does do that. The metragenine doesn't do that. Um, there are 100 other compounds that we don't know about that are, you know, could be involved in all sorts of other signaling pathways. But I wasn't, I, I wasn't um, knowledgeable on the fact that it doesn't initiate receptor um, pull-downs out of the synaptic cleft via the beta-2 arrestin-2 pathway, um, metragenine doesn't. So it was interesting to, to realize that. And it's, you know, basically just now a road sign that's saying, like, there's something more down here. We should investigate this further. But at this point, this 2016 study, um, you know, said that it didn't. It's interesting that, so, that um, they had, uh, you know, they divided people who use them for less than six years and greater than six years and they all used about the same amount so what you were saying about it making you want to use more of the drug doesn't really exist there it, yes it doesn't seem that over time yeah um the ones that are using it more often so most uh, i don't know so it's 106 less than six years 98 more than six years so it's pretty 50 50 um and it doesn't seem that um, continued use over the course of years leads to a dramatic increase in the amount of drug consumed that you would see certainly uh, in opiates. And, you know, I think this is sort of hearkening back to what I was mentioning on our, on our first uh, discussion together about a slow burn on method of administration. Yeah. Um, 
taking it as a juice or taking it as a, as a leaf compound, you are not taking the sort of pure isolated 99.9% pure metragenine um, just, you know, through whatever method of administration you want. And I think that goes, it goes a long way. Who knows if tolerance would develop as fast as it does with oxycontin if one were to consume like powdered metragenine. Um, yeah. We just don't know yet. And it, it, it speaks to the sort of the benefits. Um, and I think a lot of the, the users in the U.S. and in, in Thailand and Malaysia, there's an aspect of wanting to just sort of take care of yourself, right? So like a preference for taking your own um, therapeutic use or your own approach to removing yourself from drug addiction where you don't get the you know, the looking down on you or you're an addict or all of the sort of like social baggage that comes with trying to get help for a problem that has been characterized as a criminal justice problem, but truly is a medical issue. Um, and, and keeping, you know, consuming Kratom and keeping it in its natural form, whether you take the leaves and make a tea or you're taking just the leaves in, in capsules or you're doing the the toss and wash method that I read so much about, but I wouldn't dare to do myself just yeah. I'm scared of coughing up all that powder. Um, <laughs> there's benefits in that. And I think it's, it's several fold. Yeah. And even he, even we even talked about his uh, study about social functioning. And even in this study, it said Kratom users quote, continue to work and function usefully in society as opposed to long-term users of opioids. And they even stay away from HIV risk behaviors, which is another um, social science study that right. Dr. Singh did. Yeah. And, it, it, I mean, it basically, like, functionally, it's because you don't have to have Kratom every six hours or you'll get violently ill. You know, it's more like coffee. And they, they even said Kratom can cause severe dependence in this study, but then it said so can tobacco and alcohol. As an alternative to opioids, it's definitely uh, preferable. And yeah, I mean, that's what I think about too, as well. It's like you wake up, you make your coffee or you brew your Kratom tree and your tea, and you're sitting there thinking about what you need to get done that day. Right. So like I did that and printed out the study that we're talking about now and sort of plan the whole day being addicted to Oxycontin or heroin or even hydrocodone, you know, you're really not even capable of thinking about what your plan is for the day until you get that need satiated and taken care of. And that's where a lot of people can get in trouble. It's, it's, there's kind of a stigma around mm-hmm. uh, drug addiction, and that's why a lot of people don't go to get help uh, to maybe like NA or AA because they're kind of embarrassed to stand up in front of a group. Um, I interviewed for this podcast uh, Jennifer Van Blunk from Philly, and she had gotten she got an injury in the in the navy and and she just never was a drug user and she got hooked on opiates for 10 years and she said the thing with kratom is you can do you can do that privately by yourself in your house and, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. can you can use it as a tool to wean off opiates and you don't have to go stand in front of strangers and tell you know your personal story and there's there's none mm-hmm. of that uh there's none of that associated with it well i mean just or just going to the doctor's office you know yes. i've been in pain management doctor's offices where they have you know printed out signs on every wall that's like you know no early refills if we find anything in your system you will be cut off like it's just 
you know, and maybe yeah. for good reason because of where we went with the epidemic in this country. But like, no one's proud to be an opiate user, and everyone's just sort of trying to make it through that. Just go into the doctor's office. You know, you just sort of have to succumb to this. You are there's a problem with you and maybe we'll fix it for you if you comply with all of our rules and, and laws. Um, and it, it, it can just, I know, you know, there is one thing about like sort of being embarrassed or saying things in front of people. I want to talk on that right after this, but there's also, there's also just, I don't want to be associated with the stigma and have to carry around the weight and have to feel like a drug addict, just trying to go to a doctor's office, then to a pharmacy in order to take care of, you know, this injury that I have, or now this addiction that has developed because of that injury. Um, but I will say, you know, for Narcotics Anonymous, for Alcoholics Anonymous, it's really being able to go in front of other people, share your story, but perhaps more importantly, share your story with people who understand that story. And they're like, Oh, you think that's bad? You know, I did this uh, yeah. when I was in the, in the, um, the depths of my addiction, there is a very powerful component to that social factor mm -hmm. of just realizing you're not the only one. And that, you know, other people, in fact, a lot of other people have had the same thought of taking their grandmother's, you know, wedding ring to go get money, to go get more drugs. It's just, yeah. Often. Yeah. I mean, I have to remind myself and I often try to remind people um, you're not that unique. You know, if you're feeling this way, there are thousands of other people who also feel this way. And there's some solace in that that um, realization or reminder. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think community is important, too. And, and a lot of people tell me you know, I was addicted to opiates and then I found Kratom and then I found this Kratom community that, and we're all, we have a purpose. We want to all keep it legal. And it's like, it's like that gave me a purpose too. And I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's and then, like a lot of people join a church or something like that. And I think, yeah, that's definitely important in recovery, not to discount that, but yeah, but some people tell me, you know, I don't want to do you know, the recovery, the Kratom helped me that I could do it privately. A few people tell me that. Yeah. But, oh, no, and I can totally understand that. To, to yeah. teach their own, right? Yeah. Um, anything to to get you out of the grip of, you know, the devil's candy of opiates, um, yeah. especially pure pharmaceutical grade opiates is <laughs> a step in the right direction. And, you know, often too, I've run into where, or even just like trying to quit tobacco addiction, right? When someone... They have to make the decision for themselves and then they have to continue with that decision the best they can, but relapse is likely. And it doesn't mean you're a failure. You're with most people that try to go through this process. You get knocked off the horse, you get back on the horse. But for anyone out there trying to help a loved one off of some sort of addiction, you know, if not, if when they relapse, don't, you know, come down on them and tell them, oh, you blew up everything you've just done. You said you were going to quit. You're a horrible person. It's like, yeah. they're just people and they're trying to make it through. And the more support you can give, especially during a relapse episode, um, the, the better, the more likely they are. That community factor is certainly something that, uh, you know, is, is very important in a number for just for our species in general. But another mm -hmm. thing that, um, uh, interesting about this study was, we hear a lot about, uh, like, maybe from coroner's reports or something that, like, the the 
extreme is Kratom caused his death and he also had fentanyl in the system and they ignore the fentanyl. But then the next thing they say right. is it's a mixture of drugs. The Kratom made it worse. Um, but what Dr. Singh told me and what's in the study is these are poly drug users that are also using Kratom. And uh, so I asked Dr. Singh, was, is there a danger of using Kratom with, you know, Op- when you're an opioid addict and he said no i've never seen it he's like maybe just mm-hmm. in a, you know just where there's adulterated kratom not to like encourage people to take a whole bunch of kratom right. if they're on heroin right, right now i, I right. mean i i've right. even written uh, it might be best to tape try to taper down as much as you can but uh he, he you know with the tea and with the fresh kratom it seems like sometimes if they can't get heroin at the end of the day they'll drink a couple of glasses of kratom tea and uh, it'll mitigate the withdrawal effects. Certainly, yeah. We we haven't seen clinically a very clear-cut relationship. Like there would be, let's say, taking opiates, taking benzodiazepines, taking alcohol. Like that's the overdose trifecta right there. I mean, we know that that will cause respiratory depression to a degree that you most likely could overdose and, and die, or something. You know, something like that. Um, but that, that clear cut relationship hasn't been found. Yes. Kratom can be in the system, but all that depends on when it was taken, were they really taken together, you know? And frankly, I thought you brought up a really good point and it's, it's highlighted in this study as well. And Dr. Singh essentially said, I've never seen it. This idea that someone starts on Kratom and then moves towards harder drugs, you know, it's again, just not clinically there. Most people that have decided to make the switch to Kratom um, are doing so for a specific reason to get off of whatever was was the, you know, the, the, whether it was methamphetamine, whether it was alcohol, whether it was uh, pharmaceutical opiates. Most people are going that way. And most people don't start with Kratom. It's really, you know, it's the same way I found about Kratom. But like you find out about it in the search for a manageable um, and valid uh, therapeutically assisted way out of opiate addiction. And it, we just don't see people going the other way. And I think that's, you know, especially important to mention. We haven't heard gateway Kratom theories yet in the U.S., but you better believe we will. <laughs> um, and so by having these studies in other countries, in other populations where that's not the case, um, does a better job at painting an objective picture of what's actually going on. And I had that as a note, too. It's, it seems like the opposite. Of course, like the gateway drug thing's right out of the playbook but uh, of uh, prohibition. But uh, right. th- th- in this study, it's their first use of any drugs was at 20, and their first use of, of uh, Kratom was at 26. I think most people that I've talked to, they yeah, started using drugs either as for fun or they got injuries like in their early 20s and then they started using kratom in their 30s which is in it's right. 26 in malaysia they said on average age people get older they don't typically try new drugs that they're gonna you know form a habit with and you know it's kind of like early 20s is experimental stage but kratom is kind of like that just goes to show that people are trying it for sobriety I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I noticed that as well. The, the mean age of first illicit drug use, 20.4. Mean age of first kratom use, 26.7. Um, and also interesting in table two right below that, mean duration is 
93.7 months, which is essentially eight years, you know, 7.8 years. Um, yeah. You know, I, I see a lot on the Kratom subreddits, and, it, and it's kind of cool when you see, you know, there are people that are like, you've been, you've been using Kratom for four years, went to the doctor and got my, you know, blood panel done, everything looks good. But you, you see a lot of people who are concerned about, you know, long-term use, but really in the studies that we're seeing come out now, Eight years of use. I mean, that's a that's a long time, um, and we're not seeing these people croak over because their liver failed. Um, you yeah. know, at a at an epidemic proportion, right? It just doesn't happen. So there's there's some some data to support long term use is a, a more healthy alternative than continuing to grapple with the addiction. The other interesting thing is, so you know, they did the sociological study. But then they also collected samples of the Kratom tea from where, from, from, you know, the area in which the survey participants were, were found. So it looks like um, in some of these images, it looks like they essentially take the Kratom leaves, put them in a boiling pot of water. They end up with uh, this tea compound. So he wanted to look at what is the concentration of uh, metrigenine 7-hydroxy uh, and then the, the two other um, related compounds in uh, in the kratom tea, and it looks like they freeze dried the the kratom tea to remove the water. They kept it at minus twenty. Then they did uh, ultra pressure liquid chromatography with two mass specs, so MSMS. Three hundred milliliters of the kratom tea was equivalent to taking approximately fifty six point seven uh, milligrams of metrigenine. Um, yeah. So, and that was three it, times a day too. I think it was like 900 yeah. milliliters a day. And, and so, yeah, I think that's where I got the 150 uh, milligrams um, uh, proposal. But, you know, it's interesting because I think I have seen other studies that sort of put the target range of, the, of that molecule for opiate addiction or coming off of opiate addiction around like 75 to 175 milligrams. Um, and more often than not, um, I'm seeing now Kratom products that have uh, the alkaloid content written on the labels. And I mean, it's yeah. the AKA with their Kratom Protection Act is sort of mandating that that information be put on consumer Kratom products in the U.S. And it, in my perspective, that's only helpful for people who are trying to use Kratom in a um, responsible way because they can actually know how much they're taking and then, you know, how often they're taking it and monitor use. And if that number gets too high, they could say, you know, look, I got to, I got to back off a little bit here for my own good. Right. I've, I've already seen what opiate addiction or withdrawal looks like. I don't want to go there. Um, yeah. So I better not get too wild. And so it's another good thing that AKA is doing American Creative Association in trying to provide, um, elements that inform consumers. So informed consumption in my book is always better uh, yeah, than a black absolutely. market, you know, type of situation. Yeah. And it's all batch specific. I mean, it would have to be tested in yeah. a way analogous to most medical cannabis programs where like every harvest or depending on which farmer or cultivation operation it's coming from, you have to test the batches. And so I wonder on that, like for companies that are mass producing different Kratom products. They do have the content on there. I'm happy to see that. There are some that have a QR code that allows you to go to a certificate of analysis uh, from a lab, but we're getting there and the AKA is pushing things in the right direction.
All right, that was Kratom Science Journal Club. We're going to try to do this every other week with Dr. Jonathan Cachet. The music is Captain Big Wheel, and the song is called Moonrunner. That's my old band. For more information on all things Kratom, see KratomScience.com. Take care. <laughs>